Hello and welcome to STP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. My guest today is the campaigner and writer for The New Statesman, Louise Perry. We discuss Louise's new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Has the sexual revolution harmed women to a greater extent than men? What is the feminist case for marriage? And is marriage becoming a luxury good? Enjoy the show. After a short break, uh, when we were contesting and winning the odd election, welcome back to SDP Talk. My guest today is a writer and columnist for The New Statesman, who's written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Louise Perry, welcome. Hello. Hi. Now, I was thinking uh, the best thing to do would be to try and define the sexual revolutions. I've written something down, uh, my words, not yours, and see what you think. Um, I've defined it as the replacement from the 1960s of a set of established conservative social mores around courtship, sex, personal behaviour and marriage with a more liberal set of ideas based on individual gratification and freedom. So you start off with marriage, monogamy and restraint and you end up with anything goes, free love and hookup culture. Is that a sort of fair description? I'd say so, yeah. Sometimes people use it more broadly to talk also about things like women entering the workforce, which mm. I have a lot to say about that, but not in this book. This one is just about the, the sexual norms, as you say. So that's a fair summary. So, and what you're, I mean, one of the basic cases that you make in the book, Louise, is that um, women have paid a higher price for this revolution. Could you go into that a little bit for us? So my argument is, is based on the, the existence of sexual asymmetry. Mm. So physical asymmetry primarily, women are the ones who get pregnant, women are smaller and weaker than men, which mm. makes them more vulnerable to violence. Um, women are the ones who, you know, the pill is the thing, right, in my, mm. in my argument that changes everything, the big technology shock. Mm. Uh, women are the ones who suffer side effects of the pill, who, you know, have the responsibility of contraception in this new social context. Mm. Um, and I think that women have a lot less to gain compared with men mm. from a new culture of libertinism. Mm. Um, because all the survey data and, and evidence that I accumulate in the book suggests that women enjoy it a lot less, mm. as well as suffering all of the negative consequences. Mm. So my argument is that it's a bad deal for women, basically. A bad, terrible deal for women. <laughs> so, and, and actually you describe a lot of these things as sort of unintended consequences. Yeah. You know, something like the pill, you know, uh, should give you control, should be a good thing. But actually, uh, there are, it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it, in, 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 on your uh, way of thinking? And some of the results have been really perverse. Who would have thought that the pill would result in a rise in single motherhood? Mm. And abortion, is that right? Abortion increased because it's used, you argue that it's used as a sort of backup. Yeah, I mean, I th so I think abortion peaked in the 80s mm. and has gone down a bit lately only because of more reliable contraception like the coil and so on coming along. Although mm. the pill remains the most popular form of um, birth control, mm. despite it, it's actually not quite as reliable as people think. Yeah, no, it's surprising when I read that actually, you sort yeah. of take it that it is, but when, when you think about the number of people that use it, yeah. and then the number of people that fall pregnant, yeah. and then uh, I can't, I think there's a figure in there, 25% of pregnancies end up in abortion because of that. And it's a massive social change that 
Again, it's sort of uh, unforeseen consequences of a technology change, yeah? Yeah, because it's just effective enough to have destroyed the norms, mm. but mm. not quite effective enough to actually prevent unwanted pregnancy. And the norms were changed by the, the pill. I mean, you could, you could make an argument that the pill suited men more than women, didn't it? I mean, it, you know, uh, the ability of women to say, no, I'm not going to go along with that. Uh, changed, didn't it? I mean, in that way, it suited men more than women. It altered women's bargaining power. Mm. While also, I mean, I don't want to neglect the, the, the positives. You know, women's lives used to be completely dominated by childbearing, and mm. often it was, like, seriously physically punishing, even aside mm. from all of the other social social consequences. Um, but also, I don't think it was a coincidence that Hugh Hefner campaigned for the pill to be made available to unmarried women. Yeah, sure. It was yeah. obviously in his interests and the interests of other playboys like him. Yeah, yeah. No, you make that, actually, the chapter on Hefner's pretty gory, actually, and uh, uh, it's very, very well made. Um, so, yeah, so it changes everything, and, and that's not the only uh, unintended consequence, isn't it? One of the biggest ones, I suppose, is another sort of liberalising, um, not a technology, but a legal one, which is the Divorce Act, isn't it, in, in 69. Again, could you go into that, uh, Entirely well-intentioned. I went back and read Hansard mm. and the, you know, the people who were in favour of the reforms mm. were coming from the best possible place. I mean, they were looking around and seeing the fact that it was very hard to get divorced and people often had to jump through some fairly absurd hoops mm. in order to do so. And people were stuck in really miserable marriages and they said, why not make it a bit easier? No mm. one expected it mm. to take off to the extent that it did. You say, I mean, in in book and in, in interviews, you say that a lot of this is actually experimental, isn't it? Because we don't know what will happen with these things. You just sort of try them out and then the consequences come later and we wouldn't really think of that. But yeah, I mean, that's a good example where something that was, I, I agree with you, if you read Hansard and you read your, your account of it, uh, no one wanted people to stick in miserable or abusive marriages. Uh, you've got to have a legal means to get out of that. But then it becomes a social norm, and it really now uh, the number of children that are in um, are being brought up by both, uh, you know, uh, birth parents are is a minority, isn't it, in the UK and the states? So divorce has been part of that; it's sort of normalised it, and it's opened the window. That's the thing, because this is all about. The, I think the problem with the the liberal analysis of this is that it. Liberals use the individual as the unit of their analysis. Mm. And it's quite easy to find examples of individuals who are going to benefit from liberalised divorce laws, mm. for instance. And that's, you know, that's fine. There clearly are always perfect cases, people who are really, really well suited to whatever reform you're proposing. Mm. The problem is that people are networked. I mean, particularly mm. when we talk about sexual relationships, which are by their nature relational. Mm. Mm you can't actually laser in on individuals and make exactly the precise change you want without affecting the whole network and the whole culture. Uh, and you end up in this feedback loop. Yeah, but I think that's true of so many, so, so much of liberalism in general is the tendency, if you prioritise individual rights, it's all about me. And we forget about the IWE balance and we forget about the consequences. I mean, one of the things that hasn't been thought through, I mean, you can't, you don't, you can't see into the future, but you, a lot of this hasn't been thought through at all. What are the consequences? And we sort of take it as read. One of the reasons the book is so good, I think, is that you, you, you tackle some of the consequences head on and actually address them. And I, I'm astonished how few people do that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, divorce, divorce uh, obviously impacts 
on marriage, but marriage is sort of, uh, is, I mean, fewer people are getting married now, aren't they? Anyway, it's not just that they can't hold it together. Uh, the fewer people get married and, and, and as an entity, as a, as a sort of institution, marriage is under severe pressure. Um, you make a, a case, you, you described as a feminist case for marriage. Could you just uh, outline that for us briefly? Um, so the, 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 I mean, the, so the feminist case for marriage really starts from the recognition that uh, mothers and children are acutely vulnerable, mm. particularly in infancy, um, and that it is astonishingly difficult to raise a child entirely on your own. Mm. I mean, you know, many women find themselves in the situation of having to do it. It is just about possible with a very generous welfare state. Mm. It's never easy. I mean, we just had last week figures that I think 49% of um, single parent households are living in relative poverty. Mm. Differences in, for instance, home ownership between single parent families and married families mm. are amazing. Mm. Um, it is in every possible way you can imagine more difficult to be a single parent than mm. not. Um, there are clearly some circumstances in which that's the best option among terrible options, mm. you know, in cases of domestic violence or whatever. It mm. was, I think everyone is agreed that no one should be stuck in those kind of marriages. Mm. Um, although actually there's more domestic violence among non-married couples than married couples yeah, nowadays. Yeah. So, that, you know, the relationship isn't that obvious, but... Um, but that's rarely said, actually, isn't it? I mean, it's rarely the, the, that some of these, these facts are in the data, but you don't really hear... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's part, part, partly the reason why the institution's been undermined. There are lots of other reasons, but, you know, it's the, actually the actual facts about it aren't said. We don't hear about them. Mm. And if you, if you strip away all of the sort of um, big white wedding trappings mm. of marriage, mm. what it is in the end is a legal bond between two people and, and their children. I mean, mm. I think that if you... If you don't want to have children or you don't have children, marriage doesn't really serve an obvious function. Mm. It's, it's, it can be great on a personal level, but it's not mm. as essential. I think, though, that when you understand it in relation to the physical vulnerability mm. and social vulnerability of mothers and their children, that's when it makes sense but to that, say that you should have a legal bond between parents yeah, of those children. It makes perfect sense. And also, it's the way that uh, our species has evolved. I mean, we weren't always in... I mean, you, you could you could make a case that the nuclear family is quite a new thing in a way, which which probably is. But um, in any case, man and woman and children that, that is a, a sort of survival unit, isn't it? Historically or uh, in our evolutionary past, you can't. You, it's necessity, isn't it? It's built on necessity. And then when uh, society changes and when you don't, you perhaps don't need a bloke around, or people think you don't. Uh, it, it flies in the face of something which which is also true, I think, which is that lads need dads, particularly. And the data says that. I mean, when, you, when, you, when I read that um, chapter, I mean, I, lo I love the structure of the book because you're, you're tackling things head on and the reader knows where they are at each point. You make a case for marriage. But, you know, on, on, on all the data, on all the mountain of published data, uh, fatherlessness is associated with higher incarceration, criminality, mental illness, violence, uh, teen pregnancy, poor educational achievement, and as you say, poverty. So given the fact that that's the case, why do you think, just on a really broad scale, why do you think it's so difficult to make the case? Or do you think it is difficult? I think it is. It's definitely difficult in some quarters. Mm. But then the irony of that is that actually the people who are, the, the, 
the richer you are, the more likely you are to get married and stay married. Yes. Right? Yeah. In, in, in this country that. and yeah. elsewhere, yeah. 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 You know, marriage is a luxury good. Mm. And yet the people who are most eager generally to suppress any sort of, you know, the case I'm making for marriage do mm. tend to come from that same social group who actually are getting married themselves. So there is a, there is a certain hypocrisy there. Yeah, well, I'm going, I'm going somewhere. It's probably, probably, probably sounding a bit harsh on that. Even. Yeah, no, it appalls me. I mean, it, I have to say it appalls me. I, I think the, any, I mean, we've, we've, you've just given us a, a sort of, we bang on in the SDP about double liberalism, you know, it's in a good, good hearts, uh, sort of, you know, social and economic liberalism simultaneously hammering a society. And I don't think you can be a social conservative unless you're against that uh, and argue against it. But you've given us another one. It's a little triple liberalism, isn't it, now with the sexual revolution? But I think it, it does irritate me. I think, I think it's, I mean, just in terms of the people I observe, Louise, the, the people that I see and meet, you, you know, the tendency for, you know, well-to-do liberals to, um, to proselytize a sort of progressive case and a liberal case on drugs, on social attitudes or any of this stuff, they always do that. But they don't live that way. Then when you actually look at, you say, let's not listen to what any of these people say. Let's just look at what they actually do. Hey, hey, Presto, you find they're living in stable relationships, generally married relationships, bringing their kids up pretty much in a in a uh, protective uh, uh, zone, you know, and and doing the conservative thing. So they're acting, they're you know speaking liberal and acting conservative. It's common, isn't it? That. Yeah, Rob Henderson calls these luxury beliefs. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, the idea that... Um, uh, How does are... he define Because he defines it, doesn't he? So I think it's belief. ideas that confer status on the elites, whereas the consequences, the negative consequences are suffered by the poor. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he's, he's bang on about that. It's a, and we should call it out. And it, it is irritating. I mean, there's a little snippets in your book. You, you mentioned... The propagandists for a lot of the, uh, I think you defined as liberal feminism, the propagandists for this stuff you'll find in any university um, department. But you make the point, and I didn't know this, it wouldn't have surprised me, that most of the academics that do so aren't, don't have kids. Oh, overwhelmingly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. is it any surprise that they're, they're, yeah, they just yeah. want the world to be a bit more like them? I mean, it's a... The Motherhood in general and other forms of dependency too, you know, dependency of the disabled or the elderly or, you know, we are all going to be dependent on others at mm. various stages of it in our lives. It's mm. just a fact of life. Mm. But the kind of um, the liberal individualist analysis mm. can't really deal with that no. because the unit of analysis is the individual. And if you're thinking about a baby, say, I don't think you can really understand babies as individuals. No. Because they're completely dependent on at least one other uh, adult totally. to keep them alive. And similarly, the mothers aren't really individuals when they no. have little babies because, you know, my uh, my friend Mary Harrington writes mm. for Unheard. Mm. She said the moment that her um, liberalism fell away was when she took her baby girl home for the first time and had was woken in the night to her crying to be fed. And she thought, well, I suppose technically I am an individual and I could choose not to, you know, say, this is your problem, baby, mm. protect my own bodily autonomy. But everybody, every every atom in her body is screaming out to go and feed this baby. Oh, yeah, no. Who is, a, you know, physically connected with her. It's a, it's a reality check. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean you, you mentioned technology in the book, but technology has sort of separated us 
from a lot of the realities. I mean, I, and I, I love uh, Mary's writing, and I think I remember a couple of years ago she was talking about, uh, you know, making. I think she was making some biscuits with her, her daughter, and um, and and other pressures were coming in. You know, say she had perhaps had a deadline to write on. And she said, actually, no, I'll give that a flick because the biscuits matter too. And it's just a matter of priority. You, I think the lie is that, you, that you're encouraged to think that you can have everything. You can, there are no, there's no debt or there's no responsibility because I think that's the big thing, the big weakness of liberalism is it promises all these, all these rights and all these freedoms but uh, doesn't mention that to have a freedom. You, freedom implies responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it sort of all falls apart. It's uh, it's it's astonishing. Um, one of the things that I think um, is is a factor in all this is that human beings tend to do what other human beings are doing. So when when these great big changes happen, these social changes of what we do, how we hook up, what is given to be acceptable, what isn't, uh, it's like a sort of roller coaster. I think you get a sense in your book that you, you're saying that actually. A lot of people have had to go along with a lot of things that they weren't really comfortable with, but because everyone was doing it, we felt we had or should do it. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we 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 respond to incentive structures, right? Mm. And if something becomes normalised, I think this is particularly true for young people, mm. and it, and possibly also even more so for young women mm. who do tend to be very groupish, mm. um, and. Is interestingly actually the propensity to groupthink. The best demographic correlate with it is age. Younger right. people are by far the most prone to groupthink. Yeah, the pressure is high, isn't it? To yeah, yeah, yeah. And status is so important, yeah. and being being normal is so important, and so on. So I think yeah. the 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 criticism I get sometimes of the, this analysis is that I'm sort of not giving um, people, and in particular young women, enough credit for having autonomy and agency and making their own rational choices. Mm. I mean, there's clearly a balance here. We are we are both capable of making choices as individuals mm. and we're subject to pressures, some of which can be partially invisible. And I think that it's, it's those pressures that haven't been given enough attention. And I don't think it's good enough just to say, well, people are making their own choices, yada, yada, and not no, notice the patterns. I totally agree. I think the pressure's massive. And I think actually the... the the strength that you require to give uh, a sort of common, common way of behaviour, the flick, you're very good to be a very strong individual to say, actually, I don't agree with that. But actually, funnily enough, if you, say, if you take things in isolation, the scary thing, I think, is that uh, groups will do all sorts of things that are, are wrong and people go along with it. Uh, if they were doing that in isolation, if you were the only person doing that, you might think about it. I mean, it's not just, it's not just sexual behaviour, but things like, um, things like debt, the acceptance, for instance, of of massive amounts of student debt. I mean, if you, objectively, if you're in the 70s, 80s, uh, it began to change in the 80s, 60s and 70s, if someone said, well, you can go to university if you like, but you can have 70,000 quid's worth of debt. Uh, and by the way, you'll be the only one that does, right? Uh, people would maybe think, oh, I'm not sure I'll do that. That seems unfair, it seems not right. And I'm not gonna be an outlier. Debt, <clears throat> student debt is acceptable because everyone has it. And so the whole co cohort goes through and says, well, we're all doing this. So it seems okay. I, I, I get the picture in, in your book that's it's the same sort of thing. You've got to be, maybe we've got to find ways of, of uh, people being themselves a little bit more and kicking out against it. Do you think that's? So that's part of it. I think the other thing is also just having better norms. Yes. Yeah. Because the problem at the moment is that the, I think it's, 
The problem we have at the moment is that what young women in particular have to do is they have to learn it for themselves experientially mm. because they're not... And, and what's really striking to me in the responses to the book is I, I tend to get the most pushback from young women and mm. the most praise from older women. Right. And I think that's not a generational thing. Mm. I think that's a that's a, like a life cycle thing. Right. Because the old women have been through it. Uh, yeah, they've learned it for themselves and also they're yeah. seeing their daughters and, you know, so on. They've, they've accumulated enough life experience yeah. to... To know, to, what, know the score is. Yeah. yeah, and they've ended up agreeing with my thesis. Yeah. And I think that the... the we shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> you shouldn't have to have women sort of run the gauntlet of hookup yeah. culture and discover that it's horrible. Yeah. It should be possible from the get-go for them to, to sort of know know the truth of the world. But do you think Do you think word... I mean, I, I, I sometimes get the confused over the different blocks of generation you know, millennials, <laughs> but there is, a, there is a cohort, isn't there, a younger cohort, or slightly more, apparently anyway, slightly more socially conservative, and this may be a rebellious thing. Maybe just uh, you know we don't want to be like our, our sort of selfish boomer liberal parents, or whatever, or younger boomers. But uh, do you think that's happening? I mean, do you see that in the data? People. Yeah, I mean, so apparently there is this turn to the right slightly mm. from Gen Z. It's not the right. <laughs> I deny that. I, I always deny it. I don't think it is a turn it's towards the, the culturally. Yes, yes, yes. The yeah. turn towards the um, the post liberal quadrant. Yes. From um, from yeah. younger people. Yeah. I think it's I think it's kind of both simultaneously. So I think what I've seen, partly just from looking at social media and speaking to people, is a sort of bifurcation among younger people. So there's more negativity about porn and hookup culture and all this stuff, mm. born often by experience. I mean, this is the generation who had porn on their phones from mm. childhood. You know, they were exposed to it really young. Totally ubiquitous, yeah. 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 Um, combined with some of them being even more sex positive than millennials mm. were. So it's, I think mm. it's both. But I just definitely have seen signs, and everyone keeps telling me that there are signs of there being a backlash against some of this stuff. I think it's very encouraging. I mean, I see signs. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the terms, we mentioned the terms right and left and things, because I, I, a lot of the, our, our political project is, is to the left economically, you know, considerably in some areas. And uh, but people say, well, it's you know culturally traditional or whatever. People say that's the right. Well, it never was. I mean, it really never was. Post-war uh, labour figures would 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 have been in the same bracket as us. Really, it's just that the left, I think, became liberal, and that's its biggest problem. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sometimes described as conservative, and I resist it only because that word is normally associated with double liberalism, mm. which is absolutely not what I am. No, I know. Yes, it's, 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 well, it's, it's, it's it, to be uh, genuinely conservative, to want to hold on to what you love, which is what the best essence of it is, uh, is completely incompatible with double liberalism. It's the whole point. And I, I wish uh, more liberals understood that, but they don't. But there you go. Um, one of the interesting things about your, uh, your book is that you've, <clears throat> you've changed your mind. And I'm always interested in people, uh, when I was young, uh, it wasn't just when I was in the SDP in the 80s, but I used to have a little European flag on the back of my ca car and it was, you know, uh, and then I, I, I think Peter Riddle uh, reviewed a, a book by Peter Shaw in the, in the Times uh, called Separate Ways and I read it. I read it as a, an EU file and I thought, oh, actually, there's quite something in this. And I re read it again uh, and I changed my view and became increasingly EU sceptic, just on a democratic basis, really. Um, and you've changed your mind, haven't you? Because you, you're... I wanted to ask you what the, does that give you a, you're in a better place, aren't you? Having done that, having believed some of this stuff and then said, 
actually it's just not true? I think you sort of have to have gone on that journey in order to properly critique. Do you understand it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Because yeah. I can, I mean, mm -hmm. one, I have, I have, I still have friends who, 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 who believe in this ideology, which I now disagree with, mm -hmm. which to some extent humanizes it. Mm. I think it's easy to, to caricature your opponents if you've never had any personal interaction with them. Mm. Um, and also I think I can, I can just about remember back to how I used to, how I used to view things. Um, even though it was quite a while ago now. But they, but actually your uh, serious people will engage with you and talk with you. Probably the majority aren't actually. The majority will try and demonize your view or characterize in an unfair way. But I think, I don't, I think that's based on fear. I think that's because they're scared of, they're scared of losing the argument. Because you, um, you, yes. Sorry. So I've been, I, I've certainly been criticized by people who haven't read the book. Yeah. It's not, which I think is telling. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just, you can't, you can't, and I always, I think you should always, but actually almost probably particularly your opponents, you should, you should view their, um, view their opinion in good faith. I mean, they hold their opinions generally in, in good faith. Uh, some people, are, uh, I think, are mistaken. Um, it's, but it, yeah, if you're, if you're having to take people down without actually engaging with the arguments, that's, that's not the best idea. Um, I mean, I, I think your, the strongest parts of the book are just your clinical uh, um, assertion of fact. You know, I, I, that's, what the, 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 that's why the, the book, I think, will, will just bloom. It'll, it'll, it'll end up being a, a massive book, I think. Uh, one of the facts that you, you, you mentioned, which is so obvious to anyone that pays any attention to the world, uh, you think it shouldn't be need asserting, but you say men and men and women are different. Yes. Let's let's just it's, look at that. Yes, I mean, chapter two. Chapter two, yeah, <laughs> and the ba basics. And it's like it's like reading this, and then of course, you know. But it, yeah. and actually, so what are the, what are the implications of accepting that? I think that it means that the the liberal feminist project of trying to striving for equality, but what that means in practice has i think been to make women more like men in every possible way yeah. um i think that that project is always doomed to failure mm -hmm. because at some point you kind of hit the biological buffers mm -hmm. and you can't force people into sameness anymore i think that there were components of that project which were good and needful you know mm -hmm. it was ridiculous that women were not allowed to enter the medical profession for instance mm -hmm. you know so that this 100 years or more now um but I think that you run into problems when you end up denying the, the, the existence of sexual asymmetry mm. and trying to underplay both the physical differences and also the psychological differences. And that women pay the, the greater price for that asymmetry, as you demonstrate. Yes, that yeah. the women are the more, women are in many ways the more vulnerable sex mm. and men the more powerful. But then I think, you know, it comes back to this responsibility thing. I think that the, I think that there is, a reluctance among liberal feminists to recognize that fact because I think that it's they see it as profoundly depressing the idea that there are these immovable differences mm. and that men will always be you know bigger but stronger that, more aggressive etc yeah. but then I think the argument I want to make is that look those differences exist we mm. have to just accept them and actually there are there are there are tools available to us mm. to ameliorate the cost of of our sexual asymmetry, mm. some of which are associated with traditionalism, and I think we should be using them rather than trying to pretend there's no problem. Yeah, I, I certainly think the, there's been a tendency um, for 
success in inverted commas to be measured on a on a sort of male rule. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you're you're co you're constantly saying, well, you know, possibly male traits. You know, some of the worst ones. Uh, well, you're measuring success against them. Is that is that what you want? I mean, is that is that progress of any kind? I don't know. Well, it is progress, but it may not be very good. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think that I don't think one sex is better or worse than the other. I think that would be it would be bizarre to claim they're different. That they're, they're, they're different, and different. if we all have light and shade. Yeah, but I think, and I, but I think, I mean, you mentioned technology in the book a lot. I think one of the reasons that that the, you you might call it the modern denial of differences between the sexes. One of the reasons that that's sort of taken hold is that the domains have changed a little bit. I think it's much easier to uh, to, to to see or have a view like that in in a um, a collegiate or an office environment where yeah, I mean, it's, what difference does it make? But it's much more difficult to make that case if you're working in a brewery. Yes, or, yes. or a farm. Or a farm. Or a factory. It, or yeah. a factory. It's much yeah. more difficult because the differences agree. are obvious. Yeah. Um, so, no, it's very interesting. I, listen, I think you've, you've written a fantastic book. That is the book, and I urge everyone to check it out. Um, it's, a, it's a very easy read and a good read. Um, and I think you've, <clears throat> you've argued for restraint uh, and dignity and decency. Uh, and I think the fact that that's counter... Cultural is a pity. <laughs> I thank you for doing it. I think it's a wonderful book. Thank, thank you. you so much. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at stp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.